0: Speaking of a mess, um, Elmer's glue. For some of you all, when you think of Elmer's glue, you think of eating glue, which you shouldn't do. It's non-toxic, but you still shouldn't do it. Um, Play-Doh non-toxic too, but you shouldn't eat it either. But no, anybody ever do the thing with Elmer's glue where you put it on your hands? Everything like, mm-hmm, all the time. I'm still doing it. As a matter of fact, I'm going to do it when I go home today. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> You put the Elmer's glue on your hand, and you let it dry, and while it's drying, you're doing this, and it's making funny noises and sticking together, and it's stretching out. And after a little while, it gets dry enough to where you can just kind of, and it kind of flakes off, and it's real easy to get off your hands, right? Until you get a little older, and there's hair on your hands, and then you're like picking at it, and it hurts, but pretty easy to, to come off your hands. Now, there are other things in the world that are not so easy to get off your hands, Right? Um, I, I've never owned a diesel truck in my life. Um, drove my in-laws a couple times and I noticed they had rubber gloves in their truck. Okay. <laughs> Whatever floats your boat. Um, weird, but okay. And I finally asked them like, why, why are the rubber gloves? And they're like, oh, if you ever get fuel, you'll want to wear them because if you get diesel fuel on your hands, it ain't coming off. And you're going to smell like diesel fuel the rest of the day, at least maybe longer. Um, Don't try the Elmer's glue trick with super glue because it doesn't come off so easy either. (laughs) Just so you know, okay? Skunk, anybody ever been sprayed by skunk? Doesn't come off so easy, does it? Sometimes you get paint on your hands. There's a lot of things in the world that you just can't get off your hands. Today, we're gonna meet a man, and I have got I've got the wrong message up, y'all. I did all that ad ad hominem ad dad live. How about that? Impressive it and about Elmer's glue with no cues. Um, yeah, that was weird. I've never done that before in my life. Um, but we're gonna meet a man today who gets something on his hands that he just can't get off. A guy by the name of Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Uh, but we'll discuss that when we get there. I hope I've got the right message up. Yep, we do, okay. So we're going to read from Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 to 26. And the Gospel of Matthew is coming to a quick close, y'all. We've been here a long time, but it ain't going to be long before we're done here. So if you would please stand as we read the very words of God. And what a powerful story this is today. There's, there's a lot here for all of us. not just about Pilate, but we're going to see him a lot. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they, had gathered Pilate, when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who was called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much of him. Because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders, they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Let's pray. Father, help us in this time to see, hear, know, and obey your word. May it be by the power of your spirit, not by human reasoning, not by human reckoning, not by human working, but by the supernatural, omnipotent power of your Holy Spirit. God, we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You guys have stood a lot today, right? Sorry, not sorry. Verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. Now, I find this, it's a quick transition here in Matthew, and just so you know, up front, um, we're just going to take into account almost predominantly, almost completely, Matthew's account of this transaction. There's a lot more detail between Mark, Luke, and John of this account and some things we don't see here that, that you do see there. Um, we're going strictly by Matthew's perspective here because it's a bigger passage and we didn't have a whole lot of time to go back and forth. Um, but there's a quick transition here, Okay. Um, And it's a pretty interesting transition because when last we left Jesus, when he was with the chief priests and the elders, which was actually two weeks ago, they had found him quote unquote guilty of blasphemy. After he had quoted Daniel 7 and said, they would see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And he had said that in response to their asking him if he was the Christ, the son of God. And when he did answer like he did, uh, using that Daniel 7 allusion, they said that he had blasphemed and determined because of that blasphemy that he was worthy of death. Now, we spent last week looking at Judas. And now this week, as we return to Jesus' trial, the chief priests and elders have led Jesus to stand before the governor. That's not Jim Justice, by the way. Uh, The governor that we're going to mention here is the procurator put in place by Tiberius Caesar, a man we know as Pontius Pilate, whom we actually met back in verse 1 of chapter 27 before we cut away to Judas. And we say his name every week when we recite the Apostles' Creed, right? We say that we believe in Jesus Christ who, quote, suffered under Pontius Pilate. And it's that suffering that we will see today detailed As we meet Pilate more fully. And the reason I said that this is interesting here is because, as a governor of a Roman province, in this case the province of Judea, the governor was in a pretty high place. He had pretty high status in the Roman government, but this particular province, here Judea, was not really a prized place to be governor. These Jews, these rowdy Jews, these radical Jews, these revolting Jews had always been testy. They were always provoking rebellions against the Romans. They did not want Roman oppression. They did not want Roman occupation. And they let that that be known over and over and over and over. And having always been a very high stress area with these people constantly revolting against the Romans, the governor of Judea, in this case, Pilate, had the impossible job of being loyal to Caesar and being friendly to the locals. Well, it was kind of like oil and water. It's like there was no cooperation between the Jews and the Romans because the Jews didn't want the Romans there and the Romans would have just soon wiped them off the face of the earth and be done with them. So Pilate's put in place as the governor of Judea to keep a tenuous peace between these two parties. And Pilate wasn't very good at his job. Uh, John MacArthur points out three significant instances where Pilate really failed the test. The first time is when he was installed as governor. He marched into town with soldiers, which the Jews wouldn't have liked, but it it was a show of strength. But those soldiers were carrying poles, and they would have had two images up top. They'd have had the the Roman eagle, and they would have had an image of Caesar. Okay, this graven image. Well, are the Jews into graven images? Distinctly not. Those are idols. And so the Jews are in an uproar because the Romans are marching into town with idols. And so they have a big blow up there. That's when Pilate was first installed. The second big blow up that he had, he needed some money to build an aqueduct into the city. Well, where do you think he got the money? He goes into the temple treasury and takes money out of the Jewish temple treasury to build his aqueduct. How do you think the Jews responded to that? Revolt, okay? Second revolt under Pilate. The third time... Um, he, he had soldiers come in and they had Caesar's name emblazoned on their shields and the Jews rioted again saying, this is idolatry. We do not worship Caesar. We only worship the one true God. So three big rebellions within probably five or six years of each other. And so Pilate standing there going, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to keep Caesar happy and keep these people happy. Pilate could never just find the balance and keep Caesar and the Jews happy. And it was weighing on him. And he knows, Pilate knows, that at this point of his life, in this record that we're reading today, that if there's a report of unrest or riot in this province again, Caesar will have him removed. And after removal, you don't just get removed from a governmental post in the Roman Empire. You're probably going to lose your head too because you failed. And they don't put up with failure in the Roman Empire. So here... In our account today, here come the Jewish religious leaders with a guy in chains, showing up to Pilate's place early in the morning, asking to have this guy put to death. But do they bring the charge of blasphemy to Pilate? Interestingly, that's what I was saying was interesting, and obviously, not. because what does Pilate ask Jesus here? Does he ask him anything religious? No. He asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? So somewhere between Caiaphas's palace and Pilate's place here, these Jewish leaders, knowing that they can't execute someone on their own because the Romans didn't give them that power, and they wanted Jesus dead, somewhere between Caiaphas and Pilate, they come to Pilate and accuse Jesus of seeking kingship of the Jewish people. Which if you'll remember, we've said that Matthew's whole goal in writing this gospel from chapter 1 verse 1 was to present Jesus as what? The king of the Jews. That's his whole goal. So Jesus is really the king of the Jews. But that's not the conclusion that the illegal trial from the night before had reached, right? They had reached a charge of blasphemy. But they know that we're going to fly with Rome or Pilate because they don't care about your religious dealings. But we see their craftiness here, don't we? They know that Pilate isn't going to receive a seditious threat of someone claiming to be a king without addressing it. So if Jesus wanted to call himself the Son of Man like Daniel had spoken of, they know that the Son of Man in Daniel 7 would receive a never-ending what? A never-ending kingdom. So they just fill in the blanks and they accuse Jesus of seeking the throne now which Rome would not entertain. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' answer, well, it's actually the same as it had been to Judas about whether Judas was the betrayer or not. The same that it had been to the chief priests and elders as to whether he was the Messiah or not. His answer, you've said so. Jesus just must have driven people crazy. What does that, what does that even mean? You say... Your words, it's not a yes or a no, it's just you say. Are you the king of the Jews? You say. He didn't seek clarification as to why Pilate was asking this instead of charging him with blasphemy. He didn't try to vindicate himself. He just says, you say. And that gets the Jewish leaders going. Look at verse 12. But when he he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. So Pilate asks a question. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus doesn't really answer it. And then the chief priests and elders start in on accusing Jesus. Now we don't know what the chief priests and elders were accusing Jesus with here. But it really doesn't matter. Because whatever they were saying at or about him, zip, he gave no answer. You know, was he slumped over? Was he in pain? Was he? I don't, but I just see him standing there. They're just going at it back and forth, yelling. And he's just like, like a stone wall, you might say. Well, He just stands there. He gives no answer. Silent. He has no need to explain himself. He has no need to defend himself or even say anything against what they're saying. Jesus knows where this is all going. He's told them where this is all going. And he is steadfastly silent. As it happens. And Pilate cannot believe it. Look at 13. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Pilate's hearing all these accusations. He's hearing the chief priests and the elders. And he looks at Jesus incredulously as Jesus just stands there. And I'm sure he's seen many people begging for mercy. I'm sure he's seen many people trying to justify themselves, explain themselves, and Jesus just stands there silent. Do you not hear? Are you deaf? Are you crazy? Can't you hear them railing at you? Testifying against you? Making their case against you? Do you not hear? And Jesus? But he gave him no answer. Not even to a single charge. So that the governor was greatly amazed. Jesus just stands there. In the midst of all this chaos, in the midst of all these accusations, false accusations, and maybe they said some things that he said, or maybe pointed out some things that he did that weren't illegal, but it's building the case against him. and Jesus just stands there. I love, but he, but Jesus, he gave Pilate no answer. He didn't even address the chief priests and the elders. He not only knew where all of this was going, but several commentators pointed out that Jesus had no need to defend himself as he was guilty of nothing against the Roman Empire. He's kind of pleading the fifth. I don't have to say anything. Because anything I say, you're going to use to try to incriminate me. So you just stand there, silent. Not guilty of anything against the Roman Empire of which Pilate would have jurisdiction and authority over. It's kind of like Jesus poked the chief priests in the eye and they took him to court for a bank robbery. I mean, it's just like it flipped. Everything just... This is completely different. And Jesus just didn't even address that. He's got no stake in this case. Jesus has no concern about where this is going. He didn't do anything worthy of death according to Roman law, so he gave no answer, not even to a single charge. And Pilate just... It's not registering with him. It rocks Pilate's world. It says that the governor was greatly amazed... He literally can't believe what he's not hearing from Jesus. Here is a man who is standing before him in danger of being put to death and he won't open his mouth. He won't speak. And Pilate can't compute the serenity and the inaction in front of him. So Pilate gets to thinking. He comes up with a plan. Verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed To release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. Now a little background here. Apparently, in his efforts to procure favor with the Jewish people, Pilate had come up with a custom to release a Jewish prisoner during Passover. And it makes sense. There's more than 2 million Jews in town in Jerusalem for the Passover. And so how popular would Pilate be if he said to the Jews, hey, I'm going to let go of one of your brothers from prison just as a sign of my kindness. So it became a custom, a way to curry favor with the mob of Jews that were in town at the time. And they would have a picture of Pilate... As they left the feast week as a benevolent, kind leader who really cared about them. Okay, that's a little bit overkill. But it scored in points with the Jews to release one prisoner during the Passover. A a, a prisoner of their choosing. So Pilate thinks, why not now? Let's do that now. And I think he sees a chance to play the crowd that's gathering now against the chief priests and the elders here. The leaders are accusing Jesus, but Pilate is thinking, I'll offer to release Jesus... Or, now who's the scoundrel, scoundrel that I've got in prison? I I know who it is. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So the Romans had arrested a man named Barabbas, a Jewish man named Barabbas. He was a notorious prisoner, according to Matthew. Mark and Luke say he committed murder during an insurrection. John says that Barabbas was a robber. Either way, he's not a nice guy, it doesn't seem. But here's a little bit of a nugget to dwell on. What does the name Barabbas mean? You ever thought about this? I hadn't until this week. Bar is the prefix meaning son of. Jesus had called Peter Simon Bar-Jonah, meaning Simon son of Jonah. So Barabbas is the son of whom? Bar-Abbas. Abba. Sound familiar to you? The word is found three times in the New Testament, Abba. Mark 14, 36 is Jesus praying in Gethsemane and he prays to his Abba, Father. In Romans eight fifteen, we read that the Spirit enables us to pray Abba, Father. And Galatians 4, 6 says that the Holy Spirit cries out to God as Abba, Father. So Abba is the Aramaic word that we would translate as Daddy. It's an affectionate term for a father. So Barabbas is son of the Father. Or, more accurately, son of daddy. Barabbas, son of the father. And to add even a little more spice to this, some ancient manuscripts of Matthew's gospel include another name with Barabbas. These older manuscripts call him Jesus Barabbas. His name very well may have been Jesus, son of the father. So there's that. But he's a scoundrel. So Pilate says, I'll offer them nice Jesus or bad Jesus and see which one they pick. Surely they'll pick bad, uh, nice Jesus to be released, surely. So he offers them a, a choice here in verse 17. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas? Bad Jesus. Or Jesus who was called Christ. Now, it would seem from this verse and from what follows that a crowd, a big crowd, has gathered to see what's going on. And it's to this crowd, again, Pilate would release a prisoner to the crowd. It's to this crowd that Pilate is offering a choice as to whom he will release from his stable of Jewish prisoners. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them to the crowd, Whom do you want, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? Now, it's not recorded here in Matthew that Jesus had used this title of Christ. But it's obvious that the Jewish leaders were using this to accuse him. And it makes sense. Because the Messiah was going to come and topple the Roman oppressors, wasn't he? In the Jewish mind, he was. So Pilate asks the crowd, whom is it that they want released? Who is going to win the beauty contest? The popularity contest. Whomever the crowd picks wins and gets to go free. So which son of the father is more popular with the crowd? The robber, murderer, insurrectionist guy? Or this one who's called Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah? Would you rather me give you the gum off the bottom of my shoe or a million dollars? Pick whichever one you want. That's Pilate's thinking here. Idiot dummy jerk guy? Really nice, seemingly deliverer guy. Which which one you want, Jews? I'll release to you whichever one you want. Surely, surely, this crowd would want me to release this seemingly innocent man, not the vagrant. Surely. And verse 18 reiterates this. For he, Pilate, knew that it was out of envy that they, the chief priests, had delivered him Jesus up. Now Pilate's not a dummy. Okay, don't think he's a dummy. You don't get to where he is in the Roman government being a, a dummy. He's a pretty sharp guy, so don't miss that. He knew, it says, that he recognizes that it was out of envy that the Jewish leaders had brought Jesus for accusation. Pilate, again, is governor of the province of Judea. He has surely heard of the things going on in Jerusalem in this time of Passover. And while he may not care about their customs or their feast, it was his job to keep his finger on the pulse of this town. And this town is thumping at this time of Passover. So he could tell that the Jewish leaders were acting out of jealousy. Okay? Pilate's heard the name Jesus, he's heard of the reports, and he's hearing the crowds, and he's. He's hearing them chant something last Sunday about Hosanna. I don't know. If, and who, what's going on? It's, it's this guy. He's from up north and he's on a foal of a donkey. But they seem to really like him. Okay. And he puts two and two together here. And he says, these chief priests and elders must not like the fact that this guy's so popular. And so ultimately they're acting out of jealousy, Pilate deduces. And ultimately that's out of fear. The chief priests and the elders hate Jesus because they ain't Jesus. So Pilate thinks this easy choice of prisoners will easily lead to a landslide victory for this one the chief priests were accusing of being the Jewish Messiah. This election was going to be huge. It's going to be monstrous. It's going to be very big. It's going to be the biggest election they've ever seen in their lives. It's going to be a landslide victory like nothing they've ever seen. Surely it's going to be... But something happens curiously here. Verse 19. Besides... While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So in the midst of all this mayhem and chaos, Pilate gets a text from his wife at work. While he's out on the judgment seat, which was out on the public square where everyone could see that a trial was going on, his wife... who history tells us was named Procula, not Dracula, Procula, (laughs) she sends him a message while he's out doing his work. And her message was, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now, ain't that peculiar? In the midst of a legal proceeding, Pilate gets a message from his wife who had no skin in this game at all. That urges Pilate to let Jesus go. Have nothing to do with this righteous man. What a statement. Pilate let him go. Have nothing to do with him. Get rid of him. He's righteous. For, she says, I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now we know from other accounts, Mark says that Jesus is crucified at 9 a.m. at the third hour. So this is happening before 9 a.m., okay, early in the morning. So all this happened in the early morning before 9 a.m., and apparently just before all this mayhem, Procula had a dream that troubled her, and it was about Jesus. I had terrible dreams all night long last night, and I woke up just feeling ugh. You know what I'm saying? She had one of those dreams, and it was about Jesus, and she can't shake it. Now imagine being a judge in a court today and your phone buzzes in the middle of a proceeding. You get a message during the trial and you're reading it. You're not supposed to because you're even working. And just before you reach your verdict, your wife texts you and says, Let this guy go. He's innocent. I had a bad dream about him. All right, sounds good to me. You're innocent. Go home. Yeah. <laughs> That's not <ain't> going to work. <laughs> Yeah, it's not going to fly. But it must have held some weight to Pilate. He's troubled anyway. He's trying to figure this out. And then his wife gets involved. And this verse started with besides, which ties it to his efforts to have Jesus released via the which prisoner goes free game. So now Pilate is caught between Rome, the Jews, and his wife. God can't win. And while he's trying to figure out what to do, the chief priests and the elders are busy. Look at verse 20. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Somehow, some way, the power brokers, the chief priests and the elders, have been working their dark magic and getting the public sentiment to be or go against Jesus. Now, how did they do that? Not sure. Maybe they're promising favors or blessings, or who knows what else. Maybe they're even using fear or intimidation. However, it happened, it happened. They persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be freed and for Jesus to be destroyed. Now this has been their plot since like Matthew 11, right? The chief priests and the elders want Jesus destroyed. Now get that. Five days ago before this, this town was abuzz with a full-mounted Jesus with cries of, Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were adamant in their love and promotion of Jesus, spreading palm branches and singing his praises. Now, whether this is the same crowd or a different one, the proverbial crowd is persuaded by the leaders to have Barabbas released and to have Jesus destroyed. Wow. And Pilate wants to make sure that he's reading all this correctly. Verse 21. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. So Pilate asks again, Which one do you want me to Now, this is Barabbas. If you want Barabbas released, say Barabbas. If you want Jesus, the Christ released, say Jesus. And they say, Barabbas. This crowd now completely under the sway of the mob mentality says clearly, Barabbas. We want Barabbas to be free. This robber, murderer, insurrectionist guy. We, we want him to be free. Let him go. We want him to be free. Not this amazing rabbi who has taught, healed, and worked miracles like we've never seen before over the last three plus years. We don't want him free. We want the robber to be free. I mean, right? The old adage is a person is smart and people are stupid. And these stupid people stirred up as a mob, asked for Barabbas to walk free. But if he goes free, then what about Jesus? Pilate says. Pilate said to them, then, then what shall I do with Jesus, who's called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. So Pilate's like, okay, I'll let Barabbas go. But then what shall I do? What shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And I think it's interesting in Matthew's account that this is the second time Pilate refers to Jesus this way Jesus, who was called the Christ. Now, whether he's mocking Jesus with that title, trying to figure it all out, or whatever, Pilate keeps referring back to the accusations of Jesus being the Christ, the Messiah. What do you want me to do with your Messiah? What shall I do with Jesus who's called Christ? And they all said, they all said, they all said, let him be crucified. They all said it in one voice, one accord, without doubt or hesitation. Let him be crucified. You Romans know how to brutally murder people. We want that for this guy. Crucify him. Torture him until his life is gone. Let him be crucified. Hosanna. Crucify him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Crucify him. Save us now. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. And Pilate said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Pilate just can't figure it out. What is going on here? So he asks, why? Why? What evil has this guy done? I haven't heard anything that comes close to amounting to being worthy of death. Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. It's a full-blown mob at this point. The bloodthirsty throng has their minds made up or their mind, their collective mind made up and like a primal pack of dogs they are in full attack mode foaming at the perpetual mouth unreasoning, unfettered crying out to have the Son of God crucified. I can't help but think that there were those in the crowd who didn't know or care what was going on but were carried along by the terrible tide of hate and bloodlust. Who is it? I don't care. Crucify him! What's going on? It doesn't matter. Crucify him! uh, Crucify him! Crucify him! Let him be crucified. And the volume and the chaos is rising. So now, now what, Pilate? So, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, uh uh-oh, He took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Now remember that Pilate is teetering between pleasing Caesar and pleasing the Jews. He can't tilt to one side or the other, and to please one runs a serious risk of setting off the other. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, and don't miss that, Pilate is looking out for one person here, and it's himself. I think we're tempted to feel sorry for Pilate. He's not a victim here. He is a self-serving politician. And he sees the beginnings of a riot here. And a riot gets Pilate fired at best, beheaded at worst. So he self-servingly seeks to sever himself from the situation. He calls for water to be brought and he washes his hands in a public showing to all of them... That he is clean regarding all of this. He washes his hands and says, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. He wants everyone to know that it's not his plan nor his judgment that Jesus was guilty in any way. But understand, he's still not letting Jesus go free. He's just saying that he assumes no responsibility for what's about to happen. He's going to have Jesus crucified. He is giving into the crowd to avoid any further unpleasantries and he's doing so in order to absolve himself from any chance of any riot breaking out on his watch. He's saving his own skin by giving Jesus up to the will of the crowd which is really the will of the chief priests and elders which is truly the workings of Satan himself but ultimately is the will of God Almighty. Pilate's selfishness, as blatant and as sinful as it is, saves his skin, albeit for a short while. We'll talk about that later. But that selfishness is cowardly and is not a surprise to the maker of all things. See to it yourselves, he says. But in so saying, he's really just pawning off his sin onto someone else, at least in his own mind. He is selfish. He is sinful. And he is not innocent, As clean as his hands may seem to himself. The blood of Jesus is squarely on his hands as well. And amazingly, his absolution is well received by the crowd. Look Look at this shocking statement in verse 25. And all the people answered. His blood be on us and on our children. Get the import of this. Because what an answer from the crowd of religious worshippers, right? And all the people answered in response to Pilate saying that he was not responsible for Jesus' blood. They yell in unison, his blood be on us and our children. We'll take the blame. We're calling for the blood. We want the blood. Put it on us and our children. We want this man to die. Let the guilt of that blood be on us and our children. Now how awful. This call for the blood of Jesus. Echoing over the hills and the valleys and the streets and the avenues. In this city of God. Reflects the natural man. The unregenerate man who dare I say again. Is not neutral in his position about God. His blood be on us and on our children. We one and dead. Of course they don't understand what they're saying. Of course they don't fully understand what's going on here. They don't know the depth of their depravity or the call for this blood. But that's just another sign of the depravity. Their ignorance only compounds their heart sickness. Their spiritually dead condition leads them to call for more death. And not just any death, but the death of God of which they are proudly responsible for and glad to be responsible for. And so, of course, Pilate finally capitulates to get Jesus off his hands, so to speak. Verse 26. Then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Okay, guys, here's Barabbas. And he walks out as a free agent. A free moral agent as a result of the grace of Rome. Released from his sentence. Free to walk away from captivity and bondage. Free and not required to pay the debt that is rightfully his for his offenses. Forgiven by the state for those offenses. Not held responsible anymore for the wrongs he has done as a gift to the mob. And Jesus... Well, he has to suffer and die. Never in the history of the world before this or since this has there ever been a greater injustice done. Not only was he innocent in this case, Jesus Christ was sinless, spotless, having never transgressed the law of Rome nor the law of God. And his punishment begins with being scourged. If you've seen The Passion of the Christ, this is one of the hardest scenes to watch. Scourging was awful, terrible. They'd chain the hands to a post, lay the person out flat, and one man on each side of them would take these catanine tails type of things with sharp objects tied to it, glued to it, stuck to it somehow, and they were experts at this, and they would literally remove the flesh. From this person being scourged taking turns the Jews limited their scourging to 40 stripes Romans had no such custom they were experts at bringing this person to the point of death reviving them and doing it again and again and again and again some people say that the passion of Christ is unnecessarily gruesome no this is gruesome it's gruesome A brutal torture to begin a series of brutal tortures. Jesus has seen his prediction fulfilled. He has been betrayed by his own man. He has been tried and found guilty by the chief priests and elders. He has been handed over to the Romans, and now he has been delivered over to be crucified. Not for breaking Roman law, not for transgressing God's law. Jesus is being handed over. The sins of his people. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Barabbas walks away, and Jesus is punished. That's the gospel, y'all. Guilty men walk away free because Jesus. Is punished. And we'll explore that punishment more next week, Lord Willing. But today let's explore what we've seen today through application. Three Ps. People, Pilot, Prisoner. People, Pilot, Prisoner. First is people. The mob, the world cried for the death of Jesus. And we've talked about this so much over the last few weeks. But we can't get away from it. It just keeps coming up in different settings, in different places, in different stories. And this mob, this world, thinks that they're in control. But they're just pawns in the plan of God. Their popular opinion was only serving to accomplish God's will as pagan as it seems to us today. And they had gone from, in a five-day period, save us now, Hosanna, to give us Barabbas. And I just see this shift in this tone. Last Sunday, they're screaming, save us now. Be our Messiah. Deliver us from the will of the Romans. Separate us and liberate us and make us free from this oppression. And when Jesus didn't do that, if you're not going to save us now, then crucify him. And they reject Jesus to the point of wanting him dead. John MacArthur says, The severer the rejection, the hotter the hell. Some of you may not agree with that. I do. I do. Jesus tells Pilate at one point, he who handed me over to you is guilty of a worse sin. Some of this crowd didn't know what was going on. Most of them did. And their mob mentality, which I'm telling you today, we live in a world that is ruled by a mob mentality. And we as Christians, and here's the application point, we as Christians may look at that mob and we may be afraid. We may be overwhelmed. We may think they're winning. They're not. They're not overriding the will of God. Your rebellion is not going to be ultimately victorious against the will of God. We live in a culture more and more and more and more where might makes right. Especially right here. We're so mentally superior to our forefathers, to our predecessors. We're, we're so mentally superior to these buffoons who believe in this religious garbage that we just don't need anymore. And we may think they're winning, but they're not. Know that God is not thwarted nor hindered by the chaos of the world. Whether it be the big old world out there or the world right in your own home, in your own head. The chaos does not win. The chaos cannot thwart the purposes and plans of God. Psalm 46.6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters His voice, the earth melts. The people cried out for the death of Jesus and they thought they were going to be rid of Him. Little did they know what was coming three days from now. If You won't save us now, to hell with You, Jesus. Crucify Him. If You're not going to help me now, if You're not going to do My will, I don't need You. I would just assume you be dead. That's the voice of the people. That's the voice of the world. Second application point. Pilate. Pilate tried to play both sides, didn't he? And ultimately, his plan and goal was to help himself. He didn't care about the crowd. He didn't care about Jesus. He only cared about saving his own skin, protecting himself. He only wanted to get through this episode and get Jesus off his hands. He declared himself not guilty, but he never got rid of his guilt. Never. In just three or four years following the events that we saw today, Pilate was overtly harsh in his treatment of a crowd of Samaritan pilgrims, and he was punished by Rome by being banished to Gaul, G-A-U-L, where he died in A.D. 41, about eight years after this incident. Most historical references to him show that he had gone mad, lost his mind, and spent his last days washing his hands over and over and over, still trying to get Jesus off his hands. And most accounts say that he ended up killing himself. Application? He was guilty for the death of Jesus. And he never got over his role in that death. And the same is true for us. It was my sin that held him there. And his end will be our end unless we see that that real guilt is ours and ours alone, and there's only one way to handle it. It's not for me to wash my hands and try to convince myself that I'm okay, it's never going to work. The blood of Jesus is never coming off your hands. And that's either a wonderful thing or a terrible thing. Pilate says, I'll save myself. Pilate agrees with his wife that Jesus is a righteous man. Let's kill him anyway, because that's what's most expedient for me. That's what fits my agenda best. That's what's going to work best for me in this particular time. If I can just get through this time, everything will be fine. So I'll just push Jesus to the side. I don't need him right now. Go ahead and kill him. I'm innocent of it. I, I, don't, I don't agree with it. I don't assent to it. But hey, do have, have, have at it yourself. And the blood never comes off. Hebrews four eleven through 13 says this. And here's the application point for each and every single one of us. I don't care who you are, where you have been, where you are going. One day you will stand in front of God Almighty and you will give an account for what you did with the blood of Jesus. Either His blood has washed away my sins. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus, thank you. Or you're guilty of the blood of the Son of Man. That's the only two options you have. Pilate said, I... Go ahead and kill him. I'll convince myself and try to convince you that it's not my fault. But the blood of Jesus is for the remission of sins, of which every single one of you have committed. Me too. The people say kill him because of the mob mentality. Pilate says, Fine, that's that's fine, but I'm not guilty. And then there's the prisoner. What about Barabbas? Son of the Father. Jesus, Son of the Father. The rebel, insurrectionist, murderer, robber guy. What happened to him? Don't know. We know he walked free. We know that a guilty man walked free that day. And an innocent man was crucified. He walked free undeservedly, right? Not based on any merit of his own. Not because he pleaded a better case than Jesus. Not because he convinced anybody that he was better or more deserving of that freedom than Jesus. He was a dreg of humanity. And it was the will of Rome, the will of the mob, and the will of the Father for him to walk free. Me too. It's the will of the Father that me, a wretch, a rebel, a robber, a murderer. You're like, dude, you're a jerk. Yeah, I am. I am. And by the grace of God, I am a son of the Father. All I did to get into this relationship was to sin. God did the rest. And God looked through the crowd at me. He said, let him go. I'll pay the penalty for his sins. I'll shed my own blood so that he can walk for it. I'll go to the cross. So that he might be the son of the father. For our sake, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I deserve death. I deserve eternal punishment. But the Father sees things differently. Let me ask you this morning, as we conclude. Where do you fit best in these three Ps? Are you the people just caught up in the mob mentality? Going where the world tells you to go? Doing what the world tells you to do? Because it feels good right seems like the right thing to do popularity fame power enjoying the things that the world has to offer and sins pleasures are pleasurable for a season are you with the people or are you like Pilate just looking and saying hey look it doesn't really matter to me I don't care one way or the other about Jesus I, I'm, I'm not guilty of his blood Or are you a prisoner who's been called to freedom by the grace of God? God choosing to give you the very righteousness of that spotless, blameless lamb who was slain on that cross just a few hours after all this happened. Are you with the people? Are you Pilate? Or did you know this morning that you are a prisoner of sin who needs to be set free from the grace of God, by the grace of God, not from? Where do you find yourself this morning? Crucify Him, let Him go, or receive His grace. Those are your options. Let's pray. Father, we sang this morning that Your blood has washed away my sins. Jesus, thank you. The wrath of God completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy. Once Barabbas. Now, son of the Father. Jesus, thank you. Father, help us to know that all the reasoning, all the rationalizing in the world is not going to save us. Trying to figure it all out is not going to save us. But by your grace, you offer us wisdom and insight that we would not have received otherwise. Not from the wisdom of the world. Not from the power brokers of the world. But by your Holy Spirit, by whom we are able to cry out, Abba, Father. Father, I pray that you would show us all our desperate need for your grace. And show us that grace fulfilled through the crucifixion, through the death, burial, and resurrection. Ascension and glorification of Jesus Christ. He is our only hope. Yes, let His blood be on us and on our children. Not in blood guilt, but in forgiveness because of that blood that comes because of His obedience, His perfect sacrifice. You have accomplished it for us, God. May we walk out of this building today as free men and women because of Your grace. You've got to do it, God. I pray that You would. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. If you want to hang out and talk and pray, please go outside. We will love you better out there.